0: On WHMP, I am Bill Newman.
1: I am Buzz Eisenberg.
0: And we welcome you to the show. We want to follow up today with a story that we have been following. So let us recap a bit about what has been disclosed about the Holyoke Police Department in recent weeks. There was a report the second week in February that was by Dusty Christensen, an independent investigative reporter. Uh, It was first aired on NEPM and what Dusty Christensen revealed was that through his, I think, intrepid reporting and his filing of uh, public records requests that the responses of the Holyoke Police Department to civilian complaints after a year and a half of waiting for the documents, finally came to light. In fairness to the present administration, we have to note that all of the information was about complaints made about Holyoke police officers before Joshua Garcia became mayor. The administration, his administration does bear the responsibility, as he has conceded on this show, Uh, for taking 18 months for the information to be made public. What the mayor explained is, well, some human being has to go and find all of that information, all of those documents, all those electronic records, in order to comply with the public records request, and that took time. We'll leave aside whether that was a reasonable or unreasonable amount of time. I personally think 18 months to get the records Uh, given that Northampton did it in a matter of weeks and so did Amherst and East Hampton for that matter. Um, I just think it's really not excusable, but that's the explanation. And I assume it is significantly, uh, based in reality of the Holyoke Police Department's, uh, lack of personnel, uh, for various tasks. In any event, the mayor, Joshua Garcia, regularly appears on our show on Mayor's Monday and a few days. Afterwards, after this report came out, he was scheduled to be with us. That was on February 13th and I was quite impressed that Joshua Garcia, when I sent him a confirming email on Friday saying it is your regular time on our show on mayor's Monday, uh, I'd like to confirm that. And he wrote back and said, sure, absolutely. I'll be there. So he came and he responded to what is a, I think a disturbing report. Uh, that information that came out, which is that depending on how you count the numbers, there were something like 90 plus complaints made about Holyoke police officers in the relevant time period. And three of them, three of them resulted in some kind of action, and it was really very, very minor. Uh, Three times there was some action taken against a police officer as a result of a civilian complaint. But in 90 plus percent of the cases nothing happened Uh, there was also information that indicated that people weren't responded to there's no information about how an anonymous complaint could uh, be received by the police department Uh, the sum and substance of what was revealed was that when a civilian makes a complaint against a holyoke police officer what happens is nothing The mayor then went on to say, well, look, what I have done is I have uh, requested and paid for uh, an audit of the police department. And it's not a financial audit, he made clear. It's an audit about uh, operational matters. How is the department doing in terms of its function, function and is it performing its duties well and or isn't it? And he made clear that he expected that audit to be uh, in his hand soon and that on March 6th there would be a presentation of that information from this uh, independent agency which was conducting this audit, which is really, again, it's not a financial audit, it's a a review of the way in which the police department is performing its duties. And he said that will be made public at the... Public Safety Committee subcommittee of the Holyoke City Council on March 6th and he put great stock in what was going to be reported. He didn't have the report at the time after he appeared on our show. That report was made public because Dusty Christensen had a copy of it.
1: Buzz. Yes Bill that's a really good summary. I want to point out that in Dusty's article on February 7th he talks about. There were, in fact, as you said, 92 different complainants arising out of 69 different incidents. Some of them, extraordinary violence was alleged that the police had unconstitutionally searched, grabbed people, pulled them out of this fellow Concepcion, who uh, Dusty uh, Christensen begins his article by discussing Irving Concepcion. The police pulled them over, guns drawn, yanked them out of the car, slammed them down on the hood, did the same to other teenagers in the car. We're not talking about insignificant police uh, abridges of what their their constitutional duties are. So I just want to throw that in. We're talking about serious stuff, and as you say, the mayor said we have to see what this audit, what is actually called a risk review by a a company that... um, called Municipal Resources, Inc., M-R-I, that does this for police departments. It does audits to see whether or not the community is at less risk as a result of the police public safety function, or does it sometimes result in a community being more at risk? And uh, that's where you pick up your story. The risk review comes in that the mayor was talking about, and here we are. So
0: let's hear it. Here is a synopsis from Dusty Christensen of what is revealed or was revealed by that risk review, that audit
2: talks about doing such a review of the department had been percolating when back in March of, I believe it was 2021, an officer with the HPD, Rafael Roca, posted a a video on social media that went uh, very viral, alleging internal corruption inside the department. Eventually, as as a reporter at the Daily Hampshire Gazette at the time, I did a number of stories about overtime in the department and how many of the highest paid officers in the department were working hundreds of hours of overtime and getting parried very handsomely to do so. That was during a mayoral campaign when now Mayor Joshua Garcia was running against city councilor Michael Sullivan. Both of them at the time, after our reporting, called for an audit of the department. Garcia said that, that such reviews should happen of all city departments, whereas Sullivan was calling specifically for a financial audit of the department. Fast forward to Garcia getting elected, and, and sure enough, he followed through on his promise from the campaign trail to do a review of the department. And uh, just this week, uh, I got my hands on a copy of the final report, which is scheduled to be presented to the city council uh, on March 6th. In the article that I read this morning,
1: I see that uh, MRI, that's the Municipal Research uh, Inc., sent a survey of 111 members of the
2: department and only 33 responded. 33. Yeah, that, that's right. They And they did note in the report that that is a low response rate for these kind of surveys when they do them at police departments. Uh, you know, across the across the region. So I did find that interesting. Those uh, results from that survey of the officers were also interesting, to, to say the least. Sixty nine percent said they don't believe the department is well managed. I should say, sixty nine percent of the respondents said they didn't believe the department was well managed. Seventy two percent said they don't believe in a, internal discipline and poli- for policy and rule violations are administered in a fair and consistent consistent way. And a full sixty six percent said they didn't believe they received adequate training
0: and in particular, given the low response rate, do these experts who study departments and municipalities across the country, do they think that the results of that survey or those survey in Holyoke actually have statistical validity
2: or do they call into question their own results? It's a good question. I don't think they got into the issue of whether or not these results were statistically uh, valid. They did note that it was a low response rate for these kinds of surveys they do at, at various departments. But of course, the survey was just part one part of the review, audit, whatever you want to call it, they reviewed uh, the operations of the department, its policies, its training, and, and how it's following all those things as well. So it was a much more comprehensive review than just the survey of, of employees. It
1: lists a number of weak points in this uh, conclusion that there's a risk that the department poses to the city it's sworn to serve. And I'm reading uh, from your article right here, there's a quote, absence of governing policy Not adhering to the best practices of the profession in critical areas of law enforcement delivery, Uh, terms of collective bargaining agreements and other factors represent a systemic contribution to physical, financial and reputational risk to
2: the police department and the city. It's a really powerful statement. It is. They, I was surprised by this term that they use substantial risk when talking about the, the police department's role in the city. Uh, they mentioned several times throughout the, the review that some of the police department's policies or, or failure to follow policies poses a legal liability for the city. Um, uh, to give some examples, the the lack of, of annual training uh, when it comes to the use of tasers. It should be noted that Garcia, the mayor, uh, dedicated uh, ARPA funds uh, recently to... Uh, to buying uh, new tasers for the police department, as well as uh, one of the, they were not able to corroborate this uh, this claim. But in in one of their sit down sessions with patrol officers, the auditors noted that one of them said that police officers who are scheduled to do mandated fifteen minute checks on on prisoners in inside the department are unable to do so because they also have to man the front desk at the same time. The auditors say that if, if that statement is indeed true, that pre- presents a substantial legal liability for the
1: Did you try to get a comment from either the police chief or the mayor?
2: I did. The police chief did not respond to me, which is nothing new uh, with my reporting on the Holyoke Police Department. That's uh, that's that happens every time. Um, uh, The mayor, I believe, was out of town and so uh, was not available to uh, to give an interview, to be fair to him.
0: I have a question about liability, Dusty, and I was struck by your report. About the kinds of financial liability that this report indicates the city had. One, for not checking on people who are held in the lockup. Um, what if something happens to that person because they're out doing something else? What about um, misuse of a weapon because there hasn't been training? What about misuse of a taser because there hasn't been training? What of the, uh, the liability to the city because of this enormous overtime and lack of? Uh, Personnel and understaffing and all of that. I was also struck by something that I didn't see mention of, and that was whether there are any complaints about or were complaints reviewed by this uh, the this assessment, this risk assessment organization about use of physical force in Holyoke. Because in Springfield, you would have said, "Well, you know, obviously that's a huge problem. Look what the Department of Justice said," and yet I didn't see any mention of that here. And I was wondering if you saw that. Uh, it- how you
2: saw that? They, You know, they did get into, it was a more than 150 page report. So obviously some of the details that, that are in the, the report uh, ultimately didn't make it into our story, which is less than a thousand words. Uh, use of force policy was something reviewed, but they did not get into specific incidents of use of force in the department's uh, recent past. Uh, but they did talk about the need to, to update uh, those policies as well as a whole host of, of other policies within the department.
0: So that was our our interview with Dusty Christensen, and today there was a comment by the police chief in Holyoke that was reported in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. So, Buzz, to bring our listeners up to date, perhaps you could share what the Gazette has.
1: I I would love to. It's on the front page of the Gazette. Uh, above the fold, is the police department poses risk, um, is the article. I just want to flesh out a couple things before I quote the. Uh, police chief, because it's worth noting this extraordinary overtime that Dusty was just speaking about and which is reported in the, uh, in the, the uh, audit, the uh, risk review, it turns out those hourly overtime rates ranged from $94 an hour to $109 an hour, overtime being given to uh, police officers who are uh, sometimes for traffic review. Uh, traffic duty. Um, Police Chief David Pratt, he he made reference to the summary of the report. He got a shorter summary. The report is 132 pages. And um, he says he, what he focuses on, he asked for support and collaboration in reaching suitable staffing levels for the agency is what he wrote. Uh, he focused on the fact that he wants to have more training and he wants to have more staff he seems to attribute a lot of the deficiencies in not only policing, but also in being responsive to things like civilian complaints and Freedom of Information Act requests. He attributes it to a lack of staffing, which, of course, Mayor Garcia uh, stated, too, when we interviewed him in the wake of Dusty Christensen's article, Um so it was uh, s- several city councilors that were that, that called for this independent assessment. Um, and what the police chief uh, says in asking about these results is, uh, "quote, both the FBI and Attorney General looked into Officer Roca's allegations, which gave rise to some of these problems, and found zero evidence to open an investigation." about us. So the police chief is, uh, I mean, I'm editorializing here a little bit, but looks uh, very defensive to me in his responses, as reported in this morning's Gazette. Um, And he doesn't seem to be addressing the question of whether these citizen complaints were legitimate or not, or the, the gravity of the complaints themselves. Some of them are very serious. And the fact that a citizen Taxpayer writes a complaint about the police department's uh, conduct in the execution of their duties, and get no response. No response, and we just see that the police department is and the chief, attributing it to a lack of staffing, not to that there's a, a realistic concern that we ought to be addressing here. In fairness, he does say that more training. He's going to be asking for more training, and he's going to be asking for more staffing. Um, Pretty interesting. I think we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. Bill and I are going to continue discussing what really is an important issue uh, for the city of Holyoke and its residents uh, about the policing in Holyoke, as reported by Dusty Christensen and the uh, risk review that was done by Municipal Resources, Inc. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
4: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New New Bedford or Fall River. 1015,
3: 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
1: Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home, left off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half-op-ed column, half-serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith this Thursday, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Alison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, this Thursday at John M. Green Hall at Smith College. It's free. Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets.
5: Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst.
3: They say that the one constant in life is change, and while that might be true for most things, one thing that hasn't changed is the great meal and great time you're always going to have at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Stop by six nights a week to dine in, hang at the bar. If you don't want to eat in, there's always Roberto's new online ordering system. Just go to robertosnorthampton.com and you can order, pay, and pick up dinner six nights a week. Roberto's is open every day except Tuesdays, right on Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton. And save 30%
1: on the Shop 30 store.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg,
0: WHMP. A couple last comments for today on the Holyoke Police Department situation. It's this what this report shows, and what Dusty Christensen's reporting has revealed, is that in many ways what's going on in Holyoke is not atypical of police departments what is disturbing is that the mayor says transparency is the currency of the realm but in fact when a person wants to make a complaint against the holyoke police department needs to do it anonymously they can't that's what the report shows and when a person makes a report the odds of anything happening in response to the report of misconduct by the police is virtually zero. And that is deeply, deeply disturbing. This is a story we will continue to cover. We look forward to having more discussions with the mayor, with Dusty Christensen, and hopefully we'll be able to have the police chief on the show as well. Now, what I'd like to do is turn to another story that on the front page of today, it was front page, it's a big coverage in today's Boston Globe. And this is about paraprofessionals in massachusetts schools and how they are being treated and what they are being paid and how this is affecting to a degree i could not have imagined our children's education this is a time of the week where we have with us max page who is the president of the massachusetts teachers association really pleased that this timing worked out max page uh, for those of our listeners who haven't seen the story either in the globe or in one of the other Uh, media outlets that of course will uh, uh, cover what the Globe reported as well. Tell our listeners what the story says and then give us your reaction to it, please. Max Page.
4: Good morning, Bill and Buzz. Um, Yes, we're really pleased that there's uh, greater recognition of um, the plight of what we call education support professionals. Uh, They call the article paraprofessionals. These are a wide range of um, essential education staff, and it ranges from paraprofessionals who who work with special needs students, who work in classrooms, um supporting teachers. they do they 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 do a wide range of things. There are also there are cafeteria workers and bus drivers and secretaries. And what um, has been made clear, and frankly, it's been made clear by so many of our members in their contract battles, is that we have full-time, employees doing absolutely essential work with our young people who are earning poverty wages and have been for years and the article lifts up the central role that paraprofessionals are playing and also um, noting uh, their the terrible pay conditions that they have
0: tell us a bit more about the central role of these educational support professionals I was struck by the Globes reporting on how many they there are and how central they are to education in the classrooms throughout the Commonwealth. Tell us more about that because I think a lot of people- yeah
4: it, look, this is the, um, this is where the, the sexism uh, related comes in, which is that it, it used to be understood as well. this is like a part-time job for uh, a mother or a, you know a, a wife, to like help out, be teacher's helper in the classroom, and there, and frankly, that's some of the reason why there is such a terrible pay. Is it's treated like just an extra thing for people, and when in fact it is a full-time educator position that still lags in pay. But you were asking what, what, how essential these um, educators are. They are, for instance, um, centrally involved, sometimes one-on-one. With special needs students, doing everything from you know caring for diapering or you know caring for their every physical need as well as educating them, and um, that's that's one example. They are they are in classrooms because we have more integrated classrooms. We don't separate out kids with different varieties of needs. They're often working in a reading group, for instance, or a math group with a smaller a smaller subset of the of the classroom. They provide life skills training, behavioral management for kids who who need that support. In other words, there's a wide range of, of important skills that they that they offer in their schools. And everyone, every teacher in a public school will say, as they say in this article, we cannot run our classrooms or our programs without prior professionals. So if that's the case, it's time to actually pay them a living wage, which is what our members have been fighting for all across the state
0: the wage that they earn, this article reports, is in the area of $33,000 a year. That's that, correct. Is that the experience or the uh, information that we can have from the Mass Teachers Association, that that is representative of what is what uh, these educators are paid across school districts in the Commonwealth? Yes, I mean,
4: look, that's the average. that so we did a big survey of our paraprofessionals, para- and that's what we discovered. Um, but if you, re- there were some recent, in, you know, strikes in Woburn, in Malden, in Haverhill, and many of those were about lifting up the wages of the paraprofessionals. In Woburn, until this contract victory that was achieved uh, through a strike, there were, they were, the starting pay was $22,000 a year. Um, and the governor noted that that's not, you can't live on that and what's going to be happening because of that contract victory, the base salary will go up to 30,000 huge increase still below a living wage for that area. So this has been a drumbeat that we have been making and and our members have been making at, at contract tables saying we have got to move steadily towards a living wage for our paraprofessionals.
0: Max. These. Wage decisions are based on individual contracts between locals and various school districts. It's on a it's on a city by city school district by school district basis basis. So I'm wondering how the MTA can lift up all of these educators, given that there are I don't know how many of you probably could tell us how many different contracts it will have to be negotiated one at a time to try to have these professionals earn a living wage?
4: Well, so that's a good question, uh, Bill, because of course um, we think that there should be living wage everywhere. We have proposed to the governor and will be proposed to the legislature, extra funding above and beyond what they just announced yesterday for funding of our public schools we want to have a special grant fund to incentivize uh, districts to, above and beyond any contract negotiations, to move towards living wages. So if a district agrees to move over the course of three years their paraprofessionals to at least a living wage for that region, then they would get extra funds from the state to support that. Um, we also think that ultimately there should be a floor. They're, you know, they're in the law books of the state, there actually is a floor for teacher salaries, not for paraprofessional salaries, but for teacher salaries, it's $18,000, because it was set in the 1970s and has never been changed. Now, we have a wide range of pay all across the state, but it does seem like we should um, move up to some base salary. I will note that Bernie Sanders just had a big event with um, the, the NEA and the AFT in which he said, you know filed a bill that there should be a minimum of $60,000 pay. Well, our Woburn educators also won a new base pay for classroom teachers, of sixty thousand dollars. So that's maybe a conversation to be had to to level the playing fields or and lift up um, the lowest paid of our of our educators.
0: We're speaking with Max Page. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, I have two questions I'm dying to ask Max. We're going to do that right after this break.
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Payments being made to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund in Hadley are being called unconstitutional. Northampton attorney Alan Seawald, who represents developer Peter Galenis, told the planning board the agreement they reached with his client of an $11,000 payment to the trust for each of the six houses he's constructed at Colony Estates is patently unconstitutional and they have no basis for demanding significant payment and no basis for calculating such a payment. Board Chairman James Maximoski, in a tense exchange, said he appreciates Seawald's knowledge of the law but disagreed the town's rules are illegal. Elms College received $1.5 million, the largest from a single one-time donation in the school's history. The funds were donated by Michelle and Donald Demore. Of the $1.5 million donated, $1 million will be designated the Haiti Nursing Continuing Education Program, now known as the Our Lady of Perpetual Help Haiti Nursing Continuing Education Program. The remaining $500,000 will establish the D'Amour Center for Faculty Teaching Excellence. And the Northwestern District Attorney's Office this month announced $114,000 in grants to community groups working with youth and families and supporting people in recovery as part of its Asset Forfeiture Community Reinvestment Program. The top awards of $20,000 each went to the North Quabbin Recovery Center in Athol and the Recovery Center of Hope in Ware. The NRC and the Recovery Project also received grants of $5,000 each.
3: Partly to mostly sunny and windy today. A high in the morning in the 30s. Temperatures in the afternoon in the 20s. Clear early tonight. Diminishing wind. Clouds overnight. A low of 2 to 8 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Some flurries in the afternoon. A high of 22 to 26. I'm 22 News Storm Team. Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
6: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
7: Yo soy Johan Rochevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden recorrió el centro de Kiev en una visita no anunciada el lunes y prometió apoyar a Ucrania todo el tiempo que sea necesario en un viaje programado para eclipsar al Kremlin antes del primer aniversario de la invasión de Rusia. Cuando el presidente ruso Vladimir Putin lanzó su invasión hace casi un año, pensó que Ucrania era débil y que Occidente estaba dividido. Pensó que podría sobrevivirnos, pero estaba completamente equivocado, dijo Biden. Los tanques rusos calcinados se alzan como símbolo del asalto fallido de Moscú a la capital al comienzo de su invasión que comenzó el 24 de febrero. Sus fuerzas alcanzaron rápidamente las murallas de Kiev solo para ser rechazadas por una resistencia inesperadamente feroz. Por su parte, Rusia dice que ha anexado casi una quinta parte de Ucrania, mientras que Occidente ha prometido decenas de miles de millones de dólares en ayuda militar a Kiev. En otras informaciones, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton votó a favor de formar una comisión para estudiar la posibilidad de reparaciones para los residentes, trabajadores y estudiantes negros. La medida sigue a una acción similar en Amherst y Boston. En una resolución, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton se disculpó por decisiones pasadas que, según dijo, arraigaron la segregación y la discriminación en áreas como la vivienda y las licencias. El Consejo Municipal también votó para crear una comisión para estudiar qué iniciativas deberían financiarse para reparar esos daños y nutrir a la comunidad y la cultura negras. El concejal de la ciudad, Gary Perry, quien copatrocinó la resolución, dijo que ahora trabajará con la oficina de la alcaldesa y otros concejales para presentar una especie de esquema de cuál será el cargo de la comisión y un cronograma, así como cuál será la composición de la comisión. Perry dijo que planea tener el esquema listo para el 30 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashevega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
6: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: We continue our conversation with Max Page, who is, by training and experience, a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with us today in his capacity, as he is every week, as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Before the break, Max, you had mentioned the successful strikes by educators in I think a half a dozen uh, districts across Massachusetts. And it raised for me something that I saw in the papers this week, which was Maura Healey opposing the proposed legislation that would give teachers a right to strike. I'm wondering if you have a reaction to what the governor said.
4: Yeah, I'm. Not, I'm not sure. Um, she sort of specifically opposed the legislation. She said, you know, she doesn't. She briefly noted she doesn't really support the the right to, you know, that to, for teachers striking. But then she went on at great length about how she understands the the needs of educators and how they need fair pay. And she specifically noted that $22,000 a year for an, a paraprofessional, which was what they were being paid for the strike in Woburn, is, um, is not enough to live on. So, you know, I, I've invited the governor, and we hope that she'll come meet with some of the, the women. It's largely women who are, are education support professionals, paraprofessionals being one, one part of that job category, um, mm-hmm. and meet with them and, and hear why they felt how it's like to live, the the work that they do, um, and uh, why they felt this was the only choice for them. And I think she'll understand a little bit better why the real issue is why school districts have refused to pay living wages um, for paraprofessionals for for so many years, and how there is no uh, legal leverage to get um, school districts to the table Many of them negotiate fairly and well, and then there are some who refuse to bargain in good faith, and there is no legal pressure in this state um, to to actually force them to negotiate fairly or even negotiate timely. And so some of our members and different locals have on their own decided, you know what, enough is enough, and we're going to force the issue, and they did.
0: Yeah, we should point out to our listeners that in Massachusetts, if a union files a an unfair labor practice charge that says the employer, the school district is not bargaining in good faith. And you go through an entire legal process and they're paper after paper, and hearing after hearing after, argument after argument, and you win, the union wins and gets an order that says, yes, the employer has not been bargaining in good faith. And the remedy is an order that the employer should bargain in good faith. That's how inept, The system is Is that a fair description, Max?
7: That is the
4: system. It is a completely tilted playing field, and literally those, you know, union busting lawyers can sit at the table uh, all day long, calculating the billable hours. They're racking up without really negotiating good faith. That's why we've had several year long negotiations. We had Wuburn was over a year. Our legislation that we filed says that there should be six months of good faith bargaining. And then after that, the right to strike would kick in every regular uh, rational person says a school district um, w- who's had contracts with their educators for decades and decades should be able to resolve a contract in 6 months. And with the pressure of the time that they know that after 6 months, it will be the right to strike. We'll maybe get them to the table to negotiate fairly. That pa- expect district get them to the table.
0: Max page. We just have a few minutes left. Coming up this week, Higher Ed Advocacy Day at the State House in Boston. Tell us what it will be, why it will be, what you hope to come out of it.
4: So yes, Higher Ed for All Advocacy Day is Tuesday at the State House in Boston, um, and this is our kind of a big event of students and staff and faculty and you know leaders of campuses will be there in order to support uh, a transformative investment in public higher ed and especially the, the, the vehicle for that is the Cherish Act, which is the uh, the uh, Senate Coast lead sponsor is Senator Joe Comerford from I, our area. On the House side, one of the lead sponsors is Pat Duffy, Rep. Pat Duffy from the Holyoke area. So we really are well represented in Western Mass and Joe Comerford will be speaking and many others I'll be there and we will be advocating for the passage of this Cherish Act The reason there is hope and momentum and real passion behind this, especially this year, is that we won passage of the fair share amendment in November, that's the the so-called millionaire's tax. And um, that money is is starting to flow already. And so the question is how it will be spent. And in that millionaire's tax amendment to our state constitution, it specifically said that the money can go to public education, pre-K, through higher ed, and roads, bridges, and public transportation. So we are looking forward to the governor, hopefully in her first budget proposal next Thursday, putting forward a dramatic first step of increase in spending for debt free, high quality public higher education.
0: And to be clear, Max, there are two different uh, revenue streams we're talking about. One is the money that's going to come from the amendment to the Massachusetts Constitution. Ah, uh, which either the money has to go either to education or to transportation. That's one. That's one sum of money. The other is the CHERISH Act itself, which independently calls for support of higher ed. Yes,
4: yes. But the CHERISH Act is a is a law that says things like there shall be debt-free public higher education. It says that we will make sure that adjunct faculty, the lowest paid, like the paraprofessionals, the lowest paid in higher ed, will get health insurance and pensions and p- fair pay. The source of the money for to, to for the Cherish Act is both the regular budget and the surpluses we have, plus this new additional fund called the Fair Share Amendment, which will be upwards of $2 billion a year. So it, it definitely, there are different streams, but what we've created is now an annual fund of, of upwards of $2 billion that could um, help pay for this.
0: And the legal infrastructure to make it happen. Max Page, thank you so much for your time. I know you have to run to another meeting. This has been our weekly time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thanks so much, Max.
1: Thanks,
4: Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Good afternoon or good morning. See ya.
5: Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons. Save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy. Save 30%. The Shop 30 Store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants. Plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you are going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store. Open right now at whmp.com.
8: If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6 30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home,
1: leapt off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half-op-ed column, half-serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith Thursday, March 2nd, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Alison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, Thursday, March 2nd, at John M. Green Hall at Smith College. It's free! Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets.
9: February is National Bird Feeding Month and Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley is your bird feeding headquarters. Weinzig Nursery has a healthy selection of bird seed, feeders, suet, and more. Use multiple feeders with different seeds like black oil sunflower seed, thistle seed and fruit and nut blends to attract a variety of birds like cardinals, tufted titmice, eastern bluebirds and cedar waxwings. Hang suet feeders for flickers and woodpeckers. Birds have it tough in the winter, but Winesick Nursery makes it easy for you to feed them and keep squirrels at bay with squirrel-proof feeders and baffles. Visit Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley for all of your bird feeding needs and explore our new gift shop and houseplant boutique while you're here. Weinzig Nursery, Hadley, and winesicknursery.com. Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley. We are the growers. Come to the source.
10: The beat goes on. The beat goes
0: on. This is Talk the Talk, And this is Heartbeat with Donnabelle Cassis. Donnabelle has with her and us today a very special guest who's been with us before, one of our favorites. So the pleasure, the honor of the introduction is yours, Donnabelle.
5: Yes, I always love having this guest today. Um, But first, let me just tell you a little bit about why she's here. There's a remarkable exhibit opening up at the Springfield Museums next Saturday, March 4th. It's titled, Nelson Stevens Color Wrapping with an R. And so joining us today is Maggie North, Curator of Art for the Museum. Welcome. Welcome
11: back. Hi, Jillian Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited. We're actually in the process of installing this exhibition right now, and we're excited to share it.
5: Now, Maggie, Nelson Stevens, if you're not aware of him or his work, was a renowned artist, actor, and educator with ties to Springfield in Massachusetts. Please tell us a little bit about him.
11: That's right. So in addition to being an important member and participant in the Black Arts Movement, Nelson Stevens was a longtime professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He taught there from 1972 to 2003. almost three decades, and during much of that time, he lived in Springfield, Massachusetts, where he initiated an important public art project that resulted in murals throughout the city. He was really dedicated to engaging his students at UMass, but also his wider community in creating art and sharing art. And in addition to being, of course, an incredible visual artist himself, he was connected to the broader intellectual community um, and was a great, Great fan of music, especially jazz music.
5: Now he was also an early member of AfriCobra, which stands for the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I this is the first time I've heard about that group.
11: Isn't that a great name for an artist? It collective? is. <laughs> Take note, Um, AfriCobra was one of the important groups to come out of this larger black arts movement that was really taking off in the late 1960s and 1970s. Um, And it was really a Chicago-based collective that Nelson Stevens became acquainted with while he was teaching at Northern Illinois University in the late 1960s. And this was a group of artists who were interested in creating beautiful, positive images of Black people that could empower their community. They cast off this idea of creating art for art's sake and decided that art should be for people. It should have a Mm. social, political cause and it should uplift the communities in which it was located. Africobra was interested in public art. They also disseminated their artworks through printmaking. Um, As one of the members of Africobra said, we want everybody to have some. And, and in, in addition to this philosophy, they had a specific style of painting that was marked by bright colors that they called Kool-Aid colors, and these <laughs> <packed> <laughs> compositions, which you'll see in the Nelson Stevens show.
5: Well, you know, speaking of the colors, I was looking at some of the images um, from the exhibit and they are so alive, so vibrant and breathtaking. Can you describe to our listeners what his, It's hard to say style but that there's a there's a way in which he describes the figure especially black figures and it can you and animates them can you tell us about his work
11: yeah absolutely i think that visitors to this exhibition will really be blown away by these images because as you said they're so incredibly colorful um nelson stevens designed a mode of painting which was invested in this africobra philosophy but it was also his own he said that he decided to paint using colors as values so rather than looking to shading mixing of colors in order to describe the human figure He was an incredible draftsman who essentially used colors, applied to various parts of his canvases and his drawings to describe what we might think of as shades and tones. And so these um, canvases are actually almost prismatic and kaleidoscopic in the way that they divide color and when you step back from them you begin to see a figure taking shape the way in which he painted was really incredible and his style became an important defining aesthetic of this broader black arts movement
5: i think prismatic is such a great way of describing them because he takes the figure and puts so many dimensions within one surface using color you you, you've got to really see these images and how big are these i mean i I see them on the screen but you kind of can't get a sense of how large these these works are
11: that's a great question so in this exhibition there are a range of works paintings collages and mixed media pieces um some are fairly small there's a drawing that's not more than a foot tall within the exhibition. And then there are larger works. In the 1970s, Nelson Stevens became interested in this idea of painting on doors. Um, It was sort of prefiguring the larger murals that he would do uh, Mm -hmm. in Springfield at that time as well. But he thought of this as a way to beautify functional spaces, but also he was inspired by West African doors, which are often ornately carved. So those doors are really life-size. Picture the size of a door, and that's the size of some of these paintings. So they really range in scale, um, but they're incredibly impressive, I think because of the compositional mastery of the human form that Stevens was so well known for, and because of his incredible use of color and layers.
5: Now, some of the subjects are quite well-known, so people can identify them as he's, as you walk through the exhibit. Who are some of those figures in the pieces?
11: Right, so Nelson Stevens, I think, was really interesting in his approach to black subjects because in addition to painting, friends, people he knew, students, colleagues. He painted figures who are incredibly recognizable, such as Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali. Uh, He called these people's transformers, or folks who have come before us and made life better for everybody else. He was inspired by these people and knew that it was important to show positive representations of these individuals in order to inspire his community.
5: Now, I know that this exhibit covers more than 50 years of his life uh, career um, and, you know, exploring his political, cultural, and socioeconomic messages through his work, but I'm really interested in the mural project in Springfield because I believe he was a couple summers ago, um, hoping to get some of those uh, redone or repainted to revitalize them. Can you tell us about the mural project? Because I think, what, there's 30 murals in Springfield?
11: That's right. So many of these murals unfortunately did not survive. Um, Many of them were taken down or removed since they were painted in the 1970s. But those who follow the fresh paint mural project that takes place in in Springfield in the summer um, for the past couple years, that's happened every year, will know that actually two of Nelson Stevens' original murals were recreated in 2022. Um, And these murals are called Wall of Black Music and Tribute to Black women and there are both stunning pieces of artwork. Um, Nelson Stevens thought of his murals as a way to create an outdoor gallery that was accessible to everyone. He called these stained glass windows for the people and so he thought about the fact that. that anybody could drive through Springfield and enjoy these works of art.
5: What a pivotal figure in the arts and so important to have his work up to be seen. Maggie, how can people see this show and how long is it up?
11: This show is up for a while. We wanted to really give folks the opportunity to get to the Springfield Museums. As you said, it opens on Saturday, March 4th and it's up all the way through September 3rd. So plenty of time and we'll have lots of um, programming uh, throughout the spring and the summer to highlight this exhibition as well. So check it out on our website, springfieldmuseums.org.
0: Always a
11: pleasure.
0: Maggie North, before you go, we just have a half a minute left, but could you go back to the title of this show again and explain that to us?
11: Sure, this is called Nelson Stevens color wrapping. Color wrapping is a phrase that Nelson used to describe his artwork, the way in which he painted. And I think that will come through for folks who visit the exhibition. His painting style is totally rhythmic and in a lot of ways really indebted to conversation and to music. And so this phrase, the color wrappers and color wrapping um, was one that Nelson used and, and others used to refer to his work throughout his lifetime. Thank you, good question.
0: And you sold us. I know we just have a second left, but some of the paintings are very small, but some of them are also very large. I mean, are mural size?
11: Not quite mural size, but certainly life size. Um, The largest pieces are about almost 80 inches tall and almost 40 inches wide. So some really large pieces and yeah, they have just incredible visual impact filled with color
0: we leave it there. Donabel Cassis, Maggie North, thank you both so very much. I can't wait to see this exhibit. Thank you for letting us know about it, both of you. What a, what a treat to have you on the show today.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks you. Bill. And thanks to Kim Carlino for covering for me.
0: This has been Artbeat. The beat goes
11: on.
9: What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling
0: more
5: comfortable and optimistic?
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: And I am Buzz and Eisenberg.
0: And I'm Bill Newman. And we welcome to our show Edward Tick. Ed Tick is a psychotherapist in Belchertown. He has his doctorate in communications and rhetoric, his master's in psychology. He is the author of two new books, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage, and Coming Home in Vietnam, a collection of poetry. He will be reading from these books, having a Q&A and a book signing this Sunday, February 26th, one o'clock at the Unitarian Society in Amherst. That's 121 North Pleasant Street, right in the center of Amherst. The presentation also will be available on Zoom if you'd like to sign up for it, but also very much in present uh, at, and, uh, and live and present at the presentation one o'clock at the Unitarian Society in Amherst this Sunday. Ed Tick, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the publication of these two books. I know that what you are known for in your psychotherapy is working with veterans and in particular, your focus on post-traumatic stress. And I would like to ask you your experience with this, because I was struck By the part of your resume in which you say quite forthrightly, hey, I had a high draft number during the Vietnam War, I wasn't going to be called, and I wasn't and I didn't end up in Vietnam. And yet the focus a significant focus of your work has been with veterans and those who suffer from post traumatic stress. Can you tell us how you got to that place
12: and why it's so meaningful to you? Uh, Thanks for having me and thank you for diving into this conversation. Sorry, the power blew for a little while. Uh, I have, uh, how did I get involved with it? I am of the Vietnam generation. I was in college in uh, the 1960s. I originally was uh, protesting the Vietnam War. I began that in high school. I saw that it was immoral and untruthful really from the beginning. So through college, I was protesting the war uh, I was uh, I was applying for conscientious objectorship. Uh, I do believe in some form of universal service for everyone. We do need to give back to the country, and we all need to be initiated by giving uh, as well as receiving what our country has to offer. But I did not believe in that war, and I don't necessarily believe that military service in American Adventures overseas is the way we should become initiated uh, and give back to our country. So I was protesting the war. I didn't have to serve. I got a high lottery number. And then I moved down to Columbia County, um, the other side of the the border uh, to Massachusetts. Uh, So in 1975, I moved there. I had my master's degree in psychology, and I was beginning as a psychotherapist. And Vietnam veterans began coming into my practice. Almost as soon as I, I began as a therapist, they were my age, uh, of course, and um, we were staring at each other. I was a protester. they were a veteran. Many people at the time told me not to work with them. We did uh, PTSD was not even a diagnosis. There was not much uh, very little literature uh, and no training on how to work with veterans. But because I hadn't served, uh, I wanted to give service. I had thought that if I was drafted to go to Vietnam, the only way I would go was as a medic. And so suddenly in 1975, the war's over. Nobody's working with the veterans. They were in a terrible crisis. And some of them started to ask help. And a light bulb went on inside. And aha, I want to be a healer. And I can serve uh, the veterans and generation in our country this way. I can become a home front medic and work on healing the wounds after the war. Um, so I began that in the 1970s. Uh, Post traumatic stress disorder was not even recognized as a diagnosis until 1980. So I actually began the diagnosis existed, uh, and but it was very clear from our first sentences of meeting each other, how terribly the war had wounded and disturbed um, our, our veterans. So back then, I committed to do all I could to help and work with them and try to bring healing to the invisible wounds. Or uh, I did, I continued my best efforts of until um, the mid-1980s. For about eight or ten years, I was doing the best psychotherapy I possibly could do Educating myself in military and war traditions, being as deeply involved in the veteran community as you could get, and I determined then that the wounds of war, the traumatic wounding from war, is so deep, so comprehensive, it's much more than what psychology calls a stress and anxiety disorder or a trauma and stress disorder. Far more than that, I translate the acronym PTSD. Since we all know it, we have it, I translate it in two ways. Post-traumatic soulness. Soul, it's everything us. It's our sacred core that has been penetrated and afflicted, and everything changes as a result. Our values, the way we relate, the way we love, the way we participate in the community, as well as systems of PTSD that are more familiar to people. So I think of it as a soul rule. It's the most comprehensive methods uh, for healing possible. Which is
1: which it. is why, Ed Tick, you have decided to write. You have a double book releases coming up on Sunday, February 26th, from 1 to 3 o'clock at the Unitarian Universalist Society of Amherst. Um, so you have written these two books, which are just both being released. Could you tell us a little bit about those two books?
12: Yes, sure, thank you. Uh, well, uh, coming home in Vietnam came back out a year ago, uh, and soul medicine just came out a ago. Uh ago. Because of the pandemic, we didn't have the ability to coming home in Vietnam. But saying that, I have been looking for and developing comprehensive, holistic, and psycho spiritually based ways of healing the invisible wounds of war that we call PTSD. I have many practices. One of them that unites these two books is pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is traveling over a long distance, far and wide, and great sacrifice and effort to travel to somewhere where we can uh, really achieve a comprehensive vision, uh, experiences our healing that uh, reawakens our soul our spirituality. So I lead pilgrimages to both Greece and Vietnam. Uh, let's see. Uh, but once a year, except the pandemic did, but from beginning in 1995, pilgrimages to each of this, these countries uh, once a year. So I've led veterans and other people, uh, 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 peace activists, uh, fam- surviving family members, um, Amerasian youth who want to reunite their both, their both cultures. So I've led 19 healing pilgrimages to Vietnam. And I've led 23 to Greece. Uh, in, we practice cultural immersion. So when we go to either country, we deeply immerse in the traditions, the practices, the religion and spirituality of the cultures. We meet the people and in, interact with them to profound degrees. We participate in their healing rituals. And, and both countries are extremely generous in welcoming us. Um, and joining in with us on our healing efforts. And both countries have ancient, holistic, and spiritual and community-based practices for bringing uh, comprehensive healing and transformation to our souls. So in both countries, uh, we immerse this way, and we use their principles and practices, uh, and as well as telling our stories and reconciling uh, with the Vietnamese people uh, for healing. And these practices work extraordinarily well, extraordinarily well. So I've seen more healing uh, in two or three weeks um, through cultural immersion in one of these two countries than uh, veterans achieve in 40 years of traditional psychotherapy and medications back home.
1: Um, So, Ed Tick, we are... What is it about? You write that the modern lifestyle causes spiritual discontent and detaches us from methods of achieving well being, those methods you were just alluding to. What is it that you think is about the modern lifestyle that causes spiritual discontent?
12: Oh, thank you. We could talk about that for hours, but we, briefly. How about in four <laughs> minutes? <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> in four minutes, uh, we in America focus on the bottom line and the quick fix to everything. We need the top line. The bottom line is about money. The quick fix is about uh, brief therapy. You've got uh, three sessions or six sessions to deal with your depression and your despair. Or uh, you're here to see a psychiatrist. you have got 10 minutes to tell me your symptoms and I'll throw medications at them. We don't sit and talk deeply and listen deeply to each other's stories, to who the other person is, to the loss of meaning in their lives, to the restoration of meaning, of connection, of community. Uh, And we expect people to just uh, keep operating under these terrible conditions of stress, alienation, um, bottom line, quick fix thinking instead of really going deeply into our stories and our hearts and our minds and our souls and hearing and witnessing our full story and embracing our life journey. So we're really mi- utterly missing a spiritual life, and people are desperately hungry for it. And, and this is not only about veterans. Nearly everybody I see in psychotherapy is, is comes saying, I'm bored with my life. I'm bored with my work. Uh, we're being tra- traumatized every day. I really want meaning and connection to other people and to something beyond the human.
0: Ed Tech, I'd like to go back to uh, one part of working with veterans. Um, I, I appreciate your overarching perspective and uh, ethos that you just described to us, but I would like to know this. I'm intrigued by how you have this rapport with veterans um, when I assume you, you tell them flat, flat up and straight up, you know, I, I wasn't there. I, I didn't go through what you went through. I didn't have to do that. And oh, whether-
12: yes, Certainly, and, uh, veterans are very honest and of integrity and they need and want us to be as well. So in the, uh, my early years of work, yes, I am straight up that I was not there uh, and I'm not a veteran. In my early years of working with Vietnam veterans, that was sometimes troublesome. I mean, I really, literally, I had uh, somebody's hands around my neck choking me once. He was so angry at the anti-war movement. And uh, so early on, uh, as a non-veteran, I was able to allow veterans to project and express their anger toward the rest of the country, toward the anti-war movement, toward me, and see that I'm staying there. I want to. Know everything that they want to share, and I want to be initiated myself into what we call warrior wisdom. What do you know? What did you learn about life and about yourself that the rest of us don't know? I see them as initiated and mature people who are carrying precious wisdom. Uh, by now, I've worked with them for uh, 45 years. I have been, uh, I've worked with the Pentagon for 10 years as the subject matter matter expert on PTSD and moral injury, and they know my books. So now uh, it's no longer a problem that I'm not a veteran, as it was in the early years, but rather the veterans say to me, Scouts Honor, they say, thank you for not going to Vietnam with us, because if you had, you would be as wounded and confused and damaged as we are by not going, but by serving us at home. You are actually one of us. You're part of the brotherhood. Uh, and you've learned everything you need to know, and you're able to help us come out of that psychological war zone because you're standing on the edge, understanding our way of life, initiated into our community, uh, and, um, and you don't carry the wounding that we do, so you can guide us out of this. So it was a a disadvantage but it's actually become an advantage and a blessing that i'm not a veteran but fully initiated in their world
0: could you explain the title of your collection of poetry coming home in vietnam
12: yeah thank you for that uh let's uh, our friends out there it's coming home in vietnam so as we all know so many of our veterans have not been able to really come home here in the U.S. uh, Nostalgia, homesickness, was one of the names for a post-traumatic stress disorder in the Middle Ages. People can't come home from war without extraordinary help and support. Our country fails to do that. We don't give veterans everything they need upon homecoming. However, when we go to Vietnam, the Vietnamese people are so extraordinarily kind, welcoming, forgiving, They have no animosity toward our country or toward our veterans for the war. They are able to separate. In fact, they say our veterans were honorable warriors who did what warriors should do for their country. They were not at fault for going to Vietnam. The only ones they have issues with are our government and corporate corporate officials who sent them. The Vietnamese welcome our veterans to Vietnam, and they say Uh, And it's also a Buddhist country. So they say, the war ended on April 30th, 1975. We were your friends on May 1st. And we're sorry it took you so long to realize that. But we understand that you have PTSD. We don't have it here in Vietnam. We understand you can't come home in America. So please, please, please come home in Vietnam. Let us love you and respect you and help you so much that you can come home here in Vietnam. And they do. And we also do very much charity work, atonement work over there. Uh, uh, we've built two schools. We've um, helped Agent Orange facilities, given them a, a solar heating and hot water system. We've built um, an infirmary for an orphanage and homes for uh, some of their homeless people. So we are also practicing reconciliation and atonement by helping rebuild the country that we cause so much harm to. And our audience should know this, post-traumatic stress disorder is in very large part a result of the homecoming experience and the neglect and abandonment of our veterans on homecoming as well as during the war. They don't have it, or they don't not, do not have chronic wartime post-traumatic stress disorder in Vietnam. We would think that if psychological theory were correct that there would be epidemic PTSD in Vietnam but in fact there's almost none. So they have the cultural and spiritual um, and moral practices for themselves to not have the traumatic breakdown and they offer them to our veterans and survivors so they can come home in Vietnam.
1: Sounds really important. Um Ed Tick is going to be uh, this double book release release with Ed Tick, our local author, uh, Soul Medicine, and Coming Home in Vietnam. The event is going to be on Sunday, February 26th, from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock at the Unitarian Universalist Society of of Amherst. I understand, Ed, that people can also join uh, virtually. Is that right?
12: Yes, that's right. They Just go to the UU of Amherst uh, website and... There's a registration button. Just uh, no no feed, just register so we can hook you up to Skype. And people will be, yeah, this is a national event that happily we are uh, premiering in Amherst. So come in person or join uh, by Skype.
1: And by UU, the the Unitarian Universalist Society of Amherst. Thank you so much for joining us, Ed Tick. We are going to be back with the new executive editor of the Springfield Republican Our old friend here in local media, Larry Parnas, will be back right after these messages. Stay with us.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Payments being made to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund in Hadley are being called unconstitutional. Northampton attorney Alan Seawald, who represents developer Peter Galenis, told the planning board the agreement they reached with his client of an $11,000 payment to the trust for each of the six houses he's constructed at Colony Estates is patently unconstitutional and they have no basis for demanding significant payment and no basis for calculating such a payment. Board Chairman James Maximoski, in a tense exchange, said he appreciates Seawald's knowledge of the law, but disagreed the town's rules are illegal. Elms College received $1.5 million, the largest from a single one-time donation in the school's history. The funds were donated by Michelle and Donald Demore. Of the $1.5 million donated, $1 $1 million will be designated the Haiti Nursing Continuing Education Program, now known as the Our Lady of Perpetual Help Haiti Nursing Continuing Education Program. The remaining $500,000 will establish the Damore Center for Faculty Teaching Excellence. And the Northwestern District Attorney's Office this month announced $114,000 in grants to community groups working with youth and families and supporting people in recovery as part of its Asset Forfeiture Community Reinvestment Program. The top awards of $20,000 each went to the North Quabbin Recovery Center in Athol and the Recovery Center of Hope in Ware. The NRC and the Recovery Project also received grants of $5,000 each
3: partly to mostly sunny and windy today. A high in the morning in the 30s, temperatures in the afternoon in the 20s. Clear early tonight, diminishing wind, clouds overnight, a low of two to eight degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, some flurries in the afternoon, a high of 22 to 26. I'm 22 News Storm Team, meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Power to the Tag, your it. Power Tom to Hartman, weekdays at people. noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400 and 1240 WHMP. (laughs)
8: On Tuesday, March 21st, Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts invites you to attend our annual Celebrity Bartender event from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Student Prince. This year's Celebrity lineup includes Al Casper, Savage Arms, Amanda Garcia, Elms
4: College, Brian Hauser, Police Motor Group, Matt McGuire, TD Bank, Carla Casenzi, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and Rock 102's own Steve Nagel. All are welcome as we raise support for JA's work inspiring youth to succeed in the Pioneer Valley since 19. 19-
5: 19. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative
10: Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team
3: of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year.
6: I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business.
1: I'm Adam Baker, Vice President Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and
4: see
8: me, Jay Sealer, Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank
2: is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on
12: your friends
10: at
3: the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And
1: thanks for joining us. You know... There might be somebody, Bill, who knows more about local uh, news reporting than our uh, current guest. After almost 30 years with the Daily Hampshire Gazette, including as its editor-in-chief and a half a dozen years as a managing editor and investigations editor at the Berkshire Eagle, um, Larry Parnas has now taken on uh, the gig as executive editor of the Springfield Republican. Hello, Larry.
10: Hi, Buzz. Hi, Bill. Great to be with you guys.
1: Oh, so nice to have you here. So, this is uh, an interesting new gig you've undertaken. And I, I guess um, I, I just want to lead with uh, what is it about community journalism that you find so interesting that you've made a career out of local news gathering?
10: You know, when the Springfield Republican was was founded uh, way back when, and the same same with the Gazette, even even longer ago, it was all about local news. The papers would pick up stories about global events and doings uh but uh people live locally and these are these are the stories that uh that are relevant to people that move people that affect change and drive change uh i i i think some people think community journalism is a is is the undercard but i i've always felt that that it's it's about the world we live in right here, and if you take it seriously and and dig into issues and stories, you can do uh, as as good a work as a journalist as you can anywhere.
1: What do you mean by dig in? But,
10: well, um, not be our, just a receptor or or uh, a, a channel of uh, pronouncements, uh, but rather uh, analyze and and consider the world as it plays out around you, and push for answers that, you know, that people in power don't necessarily share uh, generously, um, and provide context, and uh, and go behind the story, and uh, just really try to see things as they really are playing out, uh, not uh, according to someone's agenda.
1: Bill, as uh, a columnist that... for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, you have a long history with Larry Parnas, Um, And here, he's got this new gig.
0: He does. And I'd like to ask you, Larry, to explain to me and our listeners, what is your title? And what does it mean in terms of what you do day to day? What's different about what your job will be at the Springfield Republican from your job with the Berkshire Eagle as the investigations editor different from the editor-in-chief position you had with the daily hampshire gazette explain those to us if you would
10: hi you uh, thank you bill i started this week so i have now four and a four and almost a half days under the belt here um the the role that i've taken on as executive editor at the republican is really very much like being the editor at the gazette uh it's the buck stops here job so you have um responsibility administratively budget hiring kind of just running the whole operation um, that all has to get done to me the thing that makes that winds my clock is news coverage and working with reporters to and photographers and all people who create content to uh, to put something together that is essential and uh, necessary and also interesting and fun and dynamic and it is of the moment and people can people pick up the news coverage and they go wow okay i get it um that's a broader role than i played most recently as investigations editor at the Berkshire eagle uh great that was a great assignment which i relished um, the, in the last year at the eagle nearly a year i served as a managing editor and was in this news gathering role and helping to lead news coverage, but I didn't then have uh, the administrative duties. Uh, Kevin Moran is the executive editor at the Eagle. So, back in I don't know, Bill, maybe back when we first met, the uh, the Republican had a larger staff, it had more editions, and there was um, more to be an executive of. Uh, Times have changed, and the staff is tighter and leaner and uh, and yet the stories are out there and begging for attention. And um, there isn't the same kind of remove of uh, from an executive editor's role as as there was, say, fifteen years ago. so i'm I uh, in the newsroom this week, I've just really relished. Meeting all the staff, talking to reporters about the stories they're working on, working with the uh, the news editor Dan Jackson, who's fairly new to the Republican, but uh, a really really good journalist uh, and an expert in court affairs and legal affairs, has a lot of experience in that. And then just a whole bunch of reporters who, um, you know, I kind of feel like you get a new coach, you learn some new strategies on how to play the game. So I'm really hoping that um, that I can bring uh, my excitement for this work uh, and just work collaboratively with this really talented staff. We also have a green light to increase staffing. So we're going to be building the paper out and uh, working closely with colleagues at Mass Live, which is the digital partner of the Republican. And we're going to just uh, raise some help
0: tell us a bit more about that because we had okay let's let's just reveal this to the to this listening audience larry parnas was on my show uh a number of times and we had a lot of discussions about the future of local journalism and i asked you about that topic a lot because i was very fearful of uh The berkshire eagle the greenfield recorder the daily hampshire gazette the springfield union of course the holyoke transcript had uh folded by then um and this the, the the future of local journalism was not at all clear and not at all bright and yet it seems as of today that the eagle is flourishing uh newspapers of new england with the greenfield recorder and the daily hampshire gazette these these papers seem to be thicker than they were a couple of years ago, more ads, um, more coverage, more reporters. You're talking about hiring reporters. Has local journalism, do we have reasons to be optimistic for its future? Or is this just an outlier, what's happening here in Western Massachusetts?
10: Oh, Bill, you had to ask that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I should clarify that we're hiring to fill some positions that became vacant so we're not we're not adding it's it's still kind of zero sum we're we're building back from some people who left uh, two two reporting positions and some petition positions in the uh the the print hub the the team the copy desk and the production team that puts out the paper physically the print paper the long term uh line is downward for staffing in newspapers in the u.s it is and i it's how low can it go it uh there's been a lot of jobs lost in in uh, in newsrooms across the country um and this is evident in springfield and north in northampton and greenfield and in Pittsfield. Um, so if you're trying to do for your readers what you did for them 20 years ago you cannot do that. It has forced a, a, um, a, an awakening among editors and reporters who are committed to the work to reevaluate what you need to spend your time on. And one of the, just top of mind, one of the things you have to let go of is this concept that you're a, a paper of record, that you need to do the things you've always done uh no you know even as the you know the economic landscape for newspapers both print and digital has changed so much um the because of that you have to reevaluate what you do with your time and to me it is all about finding the most pressing stories that people are paying attention to and in some cases, I guess, particularly with elections and some public policy decisions, referendum questions, it's really incumbent on the on newspapers to provide accurate ex- well-explained information on choices voters have to make. But there's a whole category of news that we would routinely stuff the Gazette with that they really can't that can't be produced any longer. And by the way, people don't really, pay attention to anymore. The media economy has fallen, but so has the attention economy, or that's evolved, if that's a phrase. People are so drawn in so many directions with their time, um, they're really doing more grazing with the news, by and large, than than, uh, feasting. Uh,
1: Larry Parnas, when actually you were on our show, The Afternoon Buzz, and we had the same discussion that Bill was just alluding to. And and you were talking about, in some ways, uh, delivering the news digitally has more promise. Um, and you could see ways that you could go into more detail and have more stories digitally than in the paper thing. You wrote and received awards from um, from New England, uh, newspaper and Press Association recently in December for a series of stories about the changes in our work lives caused by the pandemic. And I can only think that that that's not unrelated to what you thought is happening in your industry, that is uh, remote and digital reporting, sort of like what's happening in the workplace. Uh, do you see a correlation between those two?
10: Sure, I do. That's, that series uh, was prompted by the fact that the for the that the employers were struggling so hard in the fall of 2021 uh, to hire and it was pretty amazing you know they were calling it the great resignation and it was re- resulting in some pretty dire shortages particularly in well in retail and in restaurants um a lot of restaurants like what happened to the lunch business there's a lot of restaurants that used to be open for lunch that that aren't anymore or aren't every as often as they once were because they couldn't staff and human services uh, a very large human service organization in the berkshires was uh, was looking for a hundred clinicians so that's a lot of people who need services who weren't getting any help so we kind of looked around across the the the, the arena there at uh, at interesting places, uh, childcare, one of those pieces in that series was on childcare and the challenge of finding it and paying for it. And for the, uh, if it wasn't a home daycare situation, uh, nonprofits being able to hire childcare workers because that's a historically underfunded, underpaid profession. So, you know, the, the ways that the digital revolution has changed every, almost every nature of of work i i sometimes for my for amusement i i i tally the commercials that are coming up on cnn and if it's not about you know a, a miracle drug uh for people over 65 it's it's about sports betting or it's something to do with an app basically apps are the are what people are selling on, t- on tv now um lawyers uh It's profoundly changed the legal industry. It's changed uh, higher ed, uh, massive online, open online courses. Uh, It's everywhere. It's it's transformed everything. And I, there's I'm an eternal optimist. And I, coming back to your questions, I, I think that, uh, however low the limbo bar goes for local journalism, uh, there's still great work to do, and there's if you can track into the issues that people really do want to know about, then they'll pay for it. At the Eagle in the last year, we've had a lot of success in building subscriptions to the Berkshire Eagle, which is far more valuable than, uh, than ad impressions just by content views and page views. So there's a kind of a slow struggle uh, in smart media organizations to build a new sustainable, Normal, and and various ones that are smart are making progress on that, and hoping uh, that maybe something like the uh, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act before Congress, uh, still stuck in a committee, uh, could could make it through. This would provide uh, a tax credit for your local media subscriptions.
0: I'd like to ask, Larry, and do we have time before the break to ask one more question, Buzz? Yes. Okay, so Larry, you're talking about how electronic media has changed, well, everything. When you look at the future of local journalism, and I think it's crucial because it's local journalism that creates real content that everybody else wants to talk about and post about and talk about. I mean, it is the newspapers and the radio stations and television that create the actual content. They do the investigations and in newspapers in particular. When you talk about newspapers and when you look at the future, are you talking about? Actual physical newspapers or are you talking about something that will be online? And we should all note that the Republican, of course, has Mass Live, the Gazette has GazetteNet and it's so on across the industry.
10: We're, we're, we're headed to a, uh, a fully online news world We just, we just are, uh, in different markets in different places. Uh, print will live longer than in others. It's already lived longer than many predicted. Uh, the Republican still has quite a large circulation in print, uh, but there really aren't. M- our, our audiences, our young audiences, uh, younger members of our audience are coming in through digital. And that's not going to change. I read mostly digitally and um, that's just the way it is. And that's how um, many people, maybe most people, come to news stories if they're not in a regular news reading habit through shared content. So I'm on Facebook and a friend posts a story or shares a story. Then that's how I go in, and it's not because somebody walked over to my house and dropped the paper on my porch. It's all electronic, and uh, newspapers are using Instagram and TikTok and all the tools to reach audiences. Yes, that's the future. Uh,
1: that's the future. Well, we are. Uh, Bef- I am here. Before in the you go, Hampton. Buzz, I actually ahead, have a Dan. comment. I oh. just
2: wanted to add something to what Larry was saying. Go ahead. Um, I agree that when people are sharing stories on Facebook and all of that stuff, it's great, but we also have to look at who actually is making the revenue from that. And that is Facebook, Google, and those internet companies. And they're not necessarily rewarding the content creators, which are the newspapers. So, you know, we have to see where the revenue shift has been going, and that's why I think a large part we're actually suffering from local newspapers. There are There's massive revenue being generated online. It's just not being made by the content creators, the journalists, and the newspapers. It's being siphoned off by Facebook. Before
1: we people. take that break we were about to take, Larry, do you have a comment about that?
10: No, oh, that's that's correct. I mean, the papers that uh well the the news organizations that get those page views are able to have some revenue from the ads that appear through impressions on those pages but uh but you're right that that's not an equal balance and uh that's been something the industry has been fighting with these big social media giants about for a long time
2: and australia is actually making laws and inroads into changing that so somebody's trying
10: Mm. and europe and europe
2: in europe
1: Well, as we um, we're talking digitally with Bill Newman in Africa, Larry Parnass in Ashfield, and here I am in our Northampton studios. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with executive editor of the Springfield uh, Republican and uh, continue our conversation right after these messages. No
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
10: So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015,
3: 1400 and 1240. We are the valley. We are WHMP.
8: That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee. Maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow, and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy.
9: 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community.
1: PV Squared is a worker owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project. From your first meeting to servicing your system down the road.
11: Build Solarite right and do business better. It's the co-op difference.
8: Learn more at Co-op. Cheddar, it's not just a cheese, it's a place. It all started in the 12th century in the caves of the English village of cheddar in the caves, the temperature and humidity made it the perfect place to mature a cheese. Imagine having to go spelunking for cheddar. Now it's easier. They still make cheddar in cheddar, but now they make it in Scotland, Ireland, California, Oregon, and Cummington. If you like cheddar, you better get a cheddar at State Street in Northampton or Cooper's Corner in Florence. It's so much easier than cave digging. Oh, they've got cheddar from jolly old England, but they have natural cheddar with porter from Ireland. They've got cloth-bound cheddar from Grace Hill in Cummington, and award-winning organic cheddar from Robinson Farm in Hardwick. Where better to get a cheddar made right here in Western Mass than right here in Western Mass at State Street and Cooper's, your Cheddar header quarters. But enough with the cheesy puns. You deserve cheddar than that. Don't go all the way to Cheddar England to get a cheddar. Get your cheddar at State Street in Northampton and Coopers in Florence.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And WHMP. We are
1: back with executive editor of the Springfield Republican, Larry Parnas, who's just begun his new gig with the Republican this week. Larry, I know you have had articles as a reporter published in the Washington Post and New York Times. You've written in Connecticut and North Carolina as a reporter. Now, as an editor, after all these decades, do you still report the news?
10: I have to correct you on the New York Times thing. Uh, I've written for the Globe and the Hartford Current and the Post, but not the Times buzz.
9: Sorry. I
10: do report. I, uh, I've i always done that. And i it's made you know work uh busier but to me it's like you've got to be at the rock face digging the coal out and meeting people and i just love it that's the thing that has always been my uh the magnet for me is the opportunity to go out and meet people and talk and i found the berkshire eagle coverage area to be incredibly receptive to local reporting questions and just this week i'm working on a story that's going to be in the Sunday Republican about a, um, a man who was hit and killed on a crosswalk. It's the fifth such accident in Chicopee in five months, Mm. horrible, horrible run of uh, fatalities and went to the scene with the photographer to talk about people, about the traffic in this area and met with this late man's family yesterday. I just feel like one of the things that's going to keep reporting going is getting right to where the stories happen and hearing real people talk about what it means very very meaningful to me
0: i'd be interested to know larry you write a story to some editor editor edit the editor in chief's edit the uh, story oh yeah
10: yeah absolutely i'm a pretty clean writer uh but uh, yes there will be an editor on on this story uh you know i want to just throw out one thing i should have said earlier about the future of journalism for anybody who's uh trying to peer down that uh that that uh, pipe to me the most exciting and encouraging developments are the are the emergence of nonprofit newsrooms they're getting some tremendous funding uh you know venture philanthropy funding uh, report for america they're popping up everywhere new bedford has a tremendous new online digital local news venture uh that's really where a lot of the good talent is going and their models for how to keep local reporting alive
1: well keeping local reporting alive is what you do larry Parnas. we're so lucky to have you in this region and have had you uh for a long time, helping us understand the world in which we live. For those who have been listening in the morning, thank you so much for joining us today. For those listening in the afternoon, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of Talk to Talk. For Bill, for Dan Torres, for the WHNP team, which I'm lucky to be part of, Buzz Eisenberg for Talk to Talk. Thank you, Larry Parnas.
3: looking to take a little breather from the news we don't blame you why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station
11: i'm
4: walking hear the thing, and i'm talking
3: it's but the music you grew me, up with Then you come back to me. whmp and the news will be only, right here when you get I back
12: for your company Live
3: and And local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. -Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.